so precision agriculture and, and the several groups have tried to define this. We've really come up to a, a term or a definition of utilizing information and data to make better decisions. A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. KWS Hybrid Rye, seeding the future since 1856. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. Today marks a special occasion as we have Dr. Adam Fahrenholtz from the Feed Science Podcast joining us. In a twist, he'll take on the hosting duties while I step into the guest role. We're thrilled about this collaboration and hope you share in our excitement. Uh, before we get fully started into the conversation, uh, Brian, if you wouldn't mind, introduce yourself to uh, our audience and kind of your background and, and what you're doing today. Absolutely. So I, at Oklahoma State, I actually hold a three-way appointment. So I, I do fulfill the land-grant mission. I have primary extension duties. I teach two courses, uh, precision ag and nutrient management. And then I have a 15% research appointment. So I get hit all the three of the land grant. My background is soil science, uh, kind of in a soil fertility, nutrient management, but a lot of uh, technology throughout my grad program, a lot of sensor tech, imagery tech. And so that led me into the world of precision ag. So my title is precision nutrient management. Uh, but really, because I'm an extension specialist, as, as, as you know, you're more of a jack of all trades because you can't really do the one thing. So, you know, when I got hired on, the bosses said, well, handle handle uh, any crop that receives commercial fertilizer in the state of Oklahoma. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, I, I get corn, soy, wheat, uh, sorghum cotton. We do a fair amount of sesame. We have canola coming in and then all the forages, both uh, native and improved. And so I kind of walk two platforms in my job. I handle some of the day-to-day nutrient management decisions uh, and education, timing of nitrogen, placement of phosphorus, those, those plant essential nutrients. And I also get to really dive in on some of the new technology that's being uh, utilized and developed in agriculture technology. So, you know, whether it's imagery, automation, sensor technology, on-the-go platforms. So I get I get a delve in a lot of it, which is, it, it kind of suits me to play around in a lot of different things. I don't think I could have been a breeder who just, you know, did nothing but but make crosses all day long. That, that's not suited for me. Gotcha. I understand. Absolutely. Explore the future of agriculture with KWS, a global leader in innovation and sustainable farming practices. Uncover the exceptional qualities of our hybrid rye, cultivating a legacy for a greener tomorrow. Visit kws.com forward slash US for more information and for dealer locations. KWS, seeding the future since 1856. So you you mentioned and you you touched a little bit there in mm-hmm. your in your answer and your introduction on on the different things you do. Can you describe in general, what is meant by the term precision agriculture for those who may not know? 
Yeah. So, so precision agriculture and, and the several groups have tried to define this. We've really come up to a, a term or a definition of utilizing information and data to make better decisions. And it, and it used to be, if you asked 15 years ago, it's just about technology, right? Using machines to do better. Uh, now it's more about data, whether that's a sensor data or even human data. And so half of what Precision Ag is about is making our our units that we're, we're dealing with smaller, so moving from a farm to field to zone to, you know, we do some stuff that's on the by meter or every three foot by three foot scale. Uh, and also, so we look spatially and temporally, you know, changing things over time to not just do the right rate, but the right rate at the right time using the right source. And it also play into genetics, right? So putting the right genetic and the right soil type. So we're either maximizing yield or limiting risk because we put a genetic into a soil that might uh, might be tough to grow in. So we're going to put a tough genetic in that soil. So we limit the downside risk. Okay. So it's it's largely kind of as much data as you can get and as a specific um, down to as specific of an area, specific of a crop, mentioned genetics as, as you can get to try to kind of build that whole entire picture of what crop is going to grow the best in what space and what do we have to do to get it to do that? Exactly. Whatever technology is available to us. Yep, exactly right. And being in Oklahoma is kind of fun. I, I don't get the Corn Belt toys, right? So the Corn Belt gets all the cool toys. They have, uh, the farmers typically have a little bit more uh, revenue. So moving into the plain states, which we're, uh, you know, we have some lower yielding. So our our producers are looking at taking technology applied in the Corn Belt on really high yielding corn. And how do we do that in a rain fed environment where our yields are much more variable and we have a lower end risk of, of a bad season. Sure. Sure. All right. So when we think about those that are, we'll, we'll try to take this of, I'm going to try to keep my, as much oh, yeah. of my feed miller hat on as, <laughs> as I, as I can here and not delve too much into uh-huh. the overall kind of nutrition, yeah. but thinking of it from a, um, from the feed mills perspective, we've been asked to, to manufacture a diet and we've got the nutritional specs that have been given down through that, that formula. And that's also going to include in many cases, ingredient specifications. Uh So we want to make sure that you're bringing in, um, I formulated my diet off of corn. That's making the assumption that it is this specification, protein, fiber, moisture, whatever the specification might be. And of course that could go across, Uh across crops. What are the things then that the, you know, we, we know the quality things that the feed mill needs to look at, but what might be some other things that, that from your perspective, maybe we don't think about enough in the idea of purchasing either the, Uh the, the qualities we're not considering or the economics and, and logistics of it. Um, and then I also want to get into a little bit of all the data maybe that you're collecting and, yeah. and what are the opportunities to tie that in to maybe make those things a little more seamless in the future. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, one of the aspects, one of the things that the, in, in a lot of the agriculture market, there's probably a disconnect when it comes to the growers and, and the buyers is that, you know, I, I deal with a lot of, um, 
uh, bakers and millers. That's more of the industry that I deal with on my mm-hmm. side, but also the feed mill. I got a lot of folks, a lot of friends in the, the feed industry. And, you know, you're talking about quality. You're talking about whether it's protein, starch or what be it. You know, on the grower side, you know, I, I try to talk to a grower about, hey, you know, if you grow this quality, if you're able to do, if you're able to manipulate the crop in this way, it's better for uh, the feed mills. And the grower will always say, okay, why? Am I going to get mm-hmm. five cents more a bushel? Am I going to get, you know, a couple more dollars a ton? And so there, there's there's a lot of times a supply and demand disconnect when it comes sure. to uh, economic incentive. We are seeing, at least in our sector, more direct market if, for the smaller mills, right? The bigger mm-hmm. mills, you can't do that. But the smaller feed mills are, are sourcing out um, – and getting producers where they can tie it in. But one of the one of the aspects which would also come to data comes back to, you know, our environmental volatility is is just getting worse, right? The the regions of drought, region of flood, uh, environmental impact on the crop, not just whether you grow it or not, but actually the the outcome. So a dry grain field season versus a humid grain field season and a swing of temperature of five degrees uh, Fahrenheit could significantly change the output, whether it's the starch, whether it's carbohydrates or whether it's the protein just on that environmental impact. Um, and so the regions that we pull from to send different places, it's going to get tougher because the regions become less stable. If, if we look at grain production output. And so to to maintain consistency, the millers are either going to have to blend even more or start or start sourcing based upon environment of that season, which is going to give them the, the outcome they want. Sure, sure. Do you see, you mentioned there, I, th- I think it's an interesting point and we talk about it from time to time. Uh, the The smaller producers, in some cases, they are able to source something very specific. We mm-hmm. see that a lot in um, facilities that want to have an organic type production or a non-GMO type production. Yeah. And it's something that, in fact, they can do that a large, lot of the larger facilities can't just because they can directly source. Mm-hmm. As someone who looks at you know crop data all the time mm-hmm. and source data all the time, do you see the potential for the way those those data are collected and used to maybe allow even larger producers better tracking, uh, better ability to say, hey, I know exactly yeah. where my grain from. I mean, is there a possibility of getting to that point or is kind of our large grain infrastructure such that it's always going to be so commingled to make it too difficult? No, um so, so one thing we see, I guess there, there's multiple parts of this. One thing we see is more on-site storage, which is a which is a big deal. The more on-farm, on-site storage that that our grain producers have, the more they are able to separate and ship independently. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the co-op is always going to be a, a, an absolute need. But as as I look around our country, up through the Dakotas and out east, the amount of grain facilities going up each year are just increasing, right? Grain handling on farm storage. So that that's a that's a huge key as that and the uh, economic incentive for that increases. But our capability to measure grain uh, and measure feedstuffs on the move or independently is growing. And so 
it's it's actually I'm able to put a yield monitor in a combine now that measures protein on the go. Mm-hmm. And there's discussions and and it's not economical yet, but there would be a discussion uh, point to say that a large combine has two bins. Okay. And and you could actually sure. even on on the cut, you could be transitioning high pro, low pro, uh, irregardless of feed. And, and really with the NIR technology, it can be any characteristic you want. It could be starch. It could be protein. It can be carbohydrates if, sure. if that's what you're getting paid for. Uh, more so now it's, uh, I can map a field. I can map a quarter section. I can map an 80 with my harvest map, uh, with my, uh, yield monitor mm-hmm. and know what my composite is. And if I have the on-farm storage, I can send to different bunks, different bins and store that and then, then market it to whoever needs. And a lot of times what we'll do is for the good or bad, they may keep the high quality stuff on farm and send the average uh, what's coming out as a county average onto the co-op mm-hmm. and maybe t- uh, sell across the scale that way. And sure. so it's also given the producers more uh, flexibility to market their crop instead of just the the either sell it across the scale or, or leave it at the co-op, pay that storage fee and sell it as a, the thirds or whatever you would do. Sure. And so that that might get a little bit into your, yep. you know, the discussion, like you said, you're having with these producers about would I, you know, if I plant this variety or if I go through this strategy and it's something that the end user and, and you know, yep. I'm, I'm looking at it from the feed milling yep. perspective. But as you mentioned, flour mills, yep. um, you know, folks that are that are creating grits that are going into snack production, whatever it is that might get to that point where, yeah, you know, you invest in this and and you have that ability and it can go on to that end user mm-hmm. and they can already know what the quality is for it left your farm. Yes. Now maybe you will get paid a premium for that because they're not, you yeah. know, bringing a truckload in sampling it and crossing their fingers that it meets that particular quality spec that they're, that they're hoping that go they're trying yeah. to get. And, and we see that on, on the wheat industry. And I, I go back to that because that's that's more of my call mm-hmm. bread and butter. But if we look at that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Oklahoma, where I'm at, there was no protein premium. It, it, they took our grain and they blended it with whatever, usually out of the Pacific Northwest to get, get what the millers wanted. Uh, and now, depending on the market, which is also a challenge for farmers, is depending on the Texas harvest, our protein and what the Pacific Northwest looks like, we may get a protein premium, we may not, but it fluxes from day to day depending on what's coming in uh, as the harvest moves north. And so a lot of these premiums, if we look at the larger market, like you said, that's a tough one for a farmer to deal with because if I'm dealing with the larger market, now that larger market's following the U.S. and even international quality. And so it's, it's a highly volatile bonus system. Where sure. if all of a sudden somebody starts cutting a higher quality somewhere else, your premium is gone because the overall market can then go elsewhere. So, you know, the smaller the smaller millers, the smaller feed mills, those are able to be more stable with some, some um, you know, incentives. But when we start talking at large scale, there's opportunity, but there's also a lot of flux in that, that um, bonus uh, region. 
Sure, that makes that makes good sense. Again, my guest today is Dr. Brian Arnell, uh, research specialist and professor, or extension specialist and professor at Oklahoma State University, and host of the Crop Science Podcast, also on the Wise Genetics platform. So, I'm curious from the, and I'm sure the answer is probably a little <laughs> bit of both, but from the perspective of the precision ag, how how mm-hmm. much of it, or where do you stand in the transition of okay, we've gotten to the point where we can much better measure mm-hmm. what's going on in the field and everything to now taking it into the predictive and saying, now I, because of the data that I have, I can make a change. Um, and so I'm not measuring after the fact and then yeah. knowing as much, but I'm actually creating my soil condition, my growing condition to to create the thing that I want out of this particular crop field location, whatever the case it is. So, so our capability with models and with sensors have, has, and is exponentially growing. Mm-hmm. And so if all things are held constant, man, I, I can be extremely precise. And so I, I'll tell you right now, the answer is it depends and it depends on how you want to look at it. Yes, I can. From the research side, I can go out and small plot and I can give you every nutrient I can water, uh, by the hour, I can tell you how much uh, water and nutrients are going up through the plant and down through the plant through the xylem flowing with plant sensors that you tag on the stems of corn plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but the challenge is, much like everything in the agri industry, is that our one driving force is the weather. Mm-hmm. And so the weather throws that variable in there. If I have consistent weather, Man, I can do anything I want. That's why the, you know, greenhouse is such a, a fun environment to work in if you like stability because you manage humidity, temperature, and all that. And so I guess my answer is we know how the systems work for the most part. There's still a lot of work we're doing. Um, right now, it's a combination of taking the technology, taking the science that we know how it works. And finding the right fit for the environment and the environmental risk as far as heat, drought, and all those things and trying to say, okay, how much do we want to play with? So as a a fertility specialist, I like to play fast and loose with being extremely efficient on my inputs. Mm -hmm. All right. So I like to take, I want one pound of nutrient in and that to be taken off the field. I want a one-to-one ratio is a, a perfect scenario. However, a producer sees that one in and one out as a heavy risk because what if the environment changes and now there's efficient inefficiencies created because of uh, rainfall or moisture? So uh, the risk aversion aspect of a, of a producer is going to say, you know, I need 1.2 units on per unit removed. And so now we're trying to say, OK, we know scientifically how to do it what's the real world going to look like and how do we manage that? Sure. Yes, I can apply. I can do on the go, all kinds of stuff. The new, new, even IPM, we have the C and spray technology. We have uh, AI technology, computer learning technology, which can identify a pigweed versus a tomato plant and spray the pigweed out. So the text there, application of it, we're still learning. Sure. Sure. Well, it sounds like, and and I I, uh, I feel I feel your pain to some extent on the on like the research versus the extension side. You live in the the same dichotomy that that we do when we talk about doing feed milling research. Of if I if I really want to know the answer of 
of how this one variable affects every mm-hmm. affects whatever I'm looking at. I need an incredibly controlled environment. However, in the real world, I will never have said incredibly controlled yeah. environment. So what's the better way to set up my experiment? The one yeah. that's got the perfect scientific method that matches all the boxes and it's easy to run the stats on and, and get the publication mm-hmm. or the one that's actually going to give me a real answer that might be practical. Yeah. And, and you get to get and decide, well, I have, I have yeah. X dollars of funds. Um, which one of those am I going to do? Yeah, I, had, I have a counterpart. Um, and we were talking about this the other day, the change of our science. And I've got a feeling it's exact same in your realm is that, you know, we're doing a lot of the same stuff that, that our predecessors did in the eighties and nineties and even the two thousands. It looks the same on the outside. But but especially in the 80s and 70s, if we look at our previous research, we're moving the big dial, right? We were mm-hmm. we were kind of getting the big dial in plus or minus 20% so we can make a, a large geographic recommendation. So for me, I had to make a recommendation for the state of Oklahoma. One yeah. number, two numbers. Uh, now science and academia and even extension is moving – we got the big dial done. Now we're just doing that fine dial, which is, okay, what happens if it rains? What's if the humidity's up? Or what if this, this, this? So the the hard thing is we can measure a lot more stuff now than yeah. we could even when I was a grad student. So the measurables coming in and being thrown at us is is increasing. So it's all about that small dial now. I think that, yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. It's a... It's, uh... It's analogous, I think, honestly, and, and everybody that's that's watching or listening to this, you know, will we'll get the analogy of, you know, it's it's better today to have tools like email where you can get to anybody incredibly quickly. It makes things uh-huh. more efficient. It also it undoubtedly makes life busier in some ways because before, if you know, if I wanted to reach out to a colleague. It might take a minute. I got to call, leave a message with a, an admin assistant or on voicemail and get ready for them to get back to me. Go, or now I can just type it out. Yeah. And so with the technology comes a lot of advantages, but it also means more data, more going on. And and in some cases makes things um, can can lead to that overload. Mm-hmm. And, and it's harder to, to focus on that one big problem yeah. and just play with that for a while. I, I, we just had uh, just was talking the other day. We had a grad student. I was working with a grad student on R and she's dropping, you know, stats in doing these massive statistical analysis. And the same day I found an old pack of uh, uh, cards, the punch cards they used to put mm-hmm. in uh, that you'd have to go over the, the university mainframe and put in. And then the tractor feed paper would come out yep. and you'd have a stack and, that wasn't long ago. I mean, we're yeah. talking that was being done in the 90s, yeah. at least at Oklahoma State. We were still running that and before SAS. And so the efficiencies we have now that we can look at, and that's that's where precision ag comes in, right? Is that yeah. we have all this data, which is good and bad. I mean, there's a bunch of data being collected that nobody knows what to do with. I mean, yeah, it's a great. ton of data. Yep. Um, and the golden goose is going to be, can I find a return for that data? Yeah. So I want to talk a little about that here as, as we're, we're coming up on, on 30 minutes. Um, I was, I, I've got two questions. So the, the, I'll give you the first one, but I'll let you think about that one. Just we, in the feed industry, we're getting more and more into sensor technology and a lot of things tend to kind of roll down and get to the feed industry eventually because of margins and whatnot. 
And so I'm kind of interested in in your mind, what are some of your favorite sensor technologies that are just really cool? You already talked about like inline NAR and we do some of that as well. But you just touched on something else that I want to cover first, which is one of the things we talk about a lot um, in the feed industry. And, and like anybody else, we're also uh-huh. talking about where would machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of these things come into play. But today one of the things that we already know is if I walk into a fully automated feed mill and they're using the automation system to run, there's a huge amount of data collection going on behind the scenes. But in most cases, nobody really knows what to do with it. It's a whole bunch of data. There's probably a huge amount of information back there, but great. What are we going to do with it? What has your experience has been like that as as you guys have gone through this precision agriculture yeah. kind of revolution and been like, oh my goodness, we have all this data. Yeah. How have you learned to decide what's important and how to pull out what you really want? What's that process been like? So, so that process is a twofold. It's it's one one of the challenges as we get this data in, and this is from my my field, and so I don't know if it relates across is a lot of the time the folks that bring us these sensors and these data collection devices have no clue about our industry. Mm-hmm. They're just providing a, a flashy number, pretty picture, or some kind of graph that they think is going to change everything. But they're not bringing usable or application with the data. And so what what we've had to do, it kind of matches. You, you've got the, the computer science folks that love the deep learning and you can, the machine learning, the AI, where you could dump in a million variables and find out what variables are controlling the system. That That's one approach. And that's basically, okay, I'm putting in 50 variables, which one's controlling the most? And you could look that way. But, but man, just as an extension specialist, I go back to, I typically sit down with the farmer at that location that I've got the data from, and we just look at the stuff and talk about, okay, you've been in this, you've been on this ground since you were a kid, or you you know this ground. Tell me about, about the ground. Now let's look at the data. And I imagine in, in the milling environment, it's the same. It's like, okay, we have this data. Let's get somebody that's been working in this facility yeah. for 15 years and say, now that data makes sense. And what we do is, okay, this makes sense that this happened post hoc. Now, can it be a predictive somehow? Say, okay, we've got this this trend that's going to predict that we may go high, we may go low in this environment. But it, it takes a combination of the computer science that can look at the data, but it also just takes common application. Somebody that's had boots on the ground that, that understands the system uh, and, and merging those two together and just honestly just talking. There's no other way that I found than just talking it out and understanding. And I assume it's the same that that what works well in one system data has yeah. no relevance in another side. So imagine you're you're grinning that yeah. what's important in one mill means nothing in another enterprise. Yeah, that's exactly right. And very similar to to your situation where you know it seems like. It seems like what we figured out of what's going to help this grow here, I take that same crop and same genetic and whatever. And I mean, I've only gone like two miles down the road and now it doesn't do the same. You're right. We see the same thing in a feed mill where, well, why does this, why does this process, this additive, what this, this, this management procedure work here, but not at another facility that I thought was the same. And I love your point about, and we've had this conversation and I've, I've talked to folks in, in the industry about, look, 
artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, all these great terms, they, they have a huge potential in our industry because we've got we got motors and sensors and we got stuff running all the time. There's definitely efficiencies to find. But in each, probably in each facility, if not in some sort of amalgamation of them, there is going to be, I probably should use a different term, but I keep saying like a pain point uh-huh. of that learning process of somebody's going to have to sit down and decide what's important and what's not important and what are your goals and everything else. And then figure out how to capture the things that that really matter. There is not going to be anybody that walks in with a software package, uploads it and says, okay, it's now going to take all of your information from all of your processes and it's going to run like this for, you know, two weeks and then it's going to come back and it's going to tell you, um, you know, which motors to adjust or what to do in order to make your things more efficient. It's like, no, this is going to be a couple years worth of data. It's going to be millions of data points and you're going to have to have real live people step in and say, all right, yeah, I know the machine came out and told us this, but we can't really do that because (laughs) if we do that, the machine thinks that's okay, but it's Uh not really going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So um, to, to kind of close out here before we get on to our final few questions, yeah. I'm just curious because I'm, I'm sure there's been some really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, you kind of alluded some of it might be flashing. Some of it might be work, might work. But just for those that, you know, it doesn't even ha- doesn't have to relate to anything related yeah. to feed milling, just from kind of a neat, neat perspective. What are some of the things that have come across in the last few years? It's like, wow, this is really cool. I can't believe we can measure this or sense this or view yeah. this. So, so one of the, some of the coolest stuff and, and, and it's not going to be run in a wheat field in Oklahoma anytime in the near several sure. decades, but it's, it's like the Blue River technology that John Deere bought a couple of years ago that, that can identify a weed species from a plant species. That in, in my mind is, is, is crazy along with, and this, this goes to, we're getting some really cool data sources. We still don't have a clue what to do with them. But our our satellite constellations are giving us more and more information on a rapid base. So we have Planet okay. Labs. Uh, there's a new constellation recently put up that's LIDAR, which LIDAR is giving us height, basically. And mm-hmm. so we're not talking LIDAR once a year. We're talking LIDAR every week or oh, even wow. more rapidly. So as somebody looks at a plant maybe I have capability to look at the growth rate of corn or feed, not in just terms of color, but magnitude up. Now we start talking about, okay, if I can throw a satellite image that gives me color, uh, vegetative color, along with a height, now I have a biomass, a really predictable biomass. Now I can start talking about grain sheds. I can start talking about, you know, supply chains well ahead of advance or even infield decisions. And so we don't know what to do with the data though, right? So we're still, we're still, okay, we've got to have somebody that can apply the data in a usable platform at a, a effective cost. So, I mean, I, I sit here and I think about that, actually thinking about it from our perspective and, and kind of I'm thinking about actually the, the folks in the middle of, of you focusing on helping the, the, the growers, you know, get their get their best yields and get their best efficiencies. And and then us, you know, using and I'm sitting there also thinking about those those folks in the middle that are like the grain buyers and moving it like that all sounds that sounds like I'm not going to get that surprise crop report someday anymore where it's like, well, actually, as it turns out yields, it's like, oh, no, we knew that was coming a lot, at least a lot better 
than we have historically, yeah. that, that there will be less surprises, which will help people build in margins and help people mm-hmm. hedge things and know when to buy or when not to buy, which would make a yeah. huge difference all the way through the production chain. We're, we're getting better. We're not there yet. It, it's oh, still sure. a lot of error, but we've got some folks that, that I'm working with that are looking at grain sheds so that they could tell basically the, the buyers, the co-ops, and when they need to move out or what they need to be make available, right? So like you said, it's not a surprise what's coming in or what needs to go out. And you can get it on rail. If you know you're about to get a big crop in, you can start moving it on rail in regions or, or shifting stuff around. Absolutely. It's time for our famous three. All right. Well, I've appreciated our conversation. We'll close out with our uh, last few questions here. So I'm thinking actually from the perspective of the the folks that might be in the feed industry, and we've obviously got feed millers that that um, are, are watching or listening to this, as well as nutrition folks and everything else. From your perspective, someone who's dealing a lot with the crop science, what would be a good resource for them to better understand kind of what they're looking at, what could be coming into their facilities, either on just a kind of a global basis, uh, might be a a resource like that, or on a more continual basis. Hey, if you really want to have a good idea of what's out there and what might be coming, you know, in the next crop cycle or whatever, these, these are the places you should be going to look. Man, that is a good question that I wasn't, I wasn't prepped for. So well done, Adam. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, just right off the cuff, there's a couple of things, you know, we look at those national reports and in and the national reports and see that. But I honestly, I get as much sometimes of following the pri- the right social media and marketing groups mm-hmm. and just keeping an eye on what's going on there. Uh, there's a lot of chatter, but you kind of zone in after a time. And so I do feel like now via media outlets, a couple of them. Um, I'm kind of drawing a blank on it, but I follow a couple that I can I can get a pretty good feel of. I, I watch it also for IPM, right? So in, in our area, I watch what's south because everything blows out of Texas. And so I can blame oh, Texas sure. for all my problems. But I can watch I can watch social media and different media outlets in Texas along the Red River to see what's working its way north. And I can also look north on other other environments. So look outside of the region they're pulling from. Keep an eye out for weather. I keep, of course, I'm sure you, the milling industry, but I keep really close ties on or eyes on uh, Brazil, Argentina, mm-hmm. and over there. See, watch what's happening in Ukraine and Russia as far as just overall what what impacts our our price point of what we're going to be getting. Yeah, that's actually that's a that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but kind of that idea of sure there are the crop reports, there are the um, very well. Uh, what was I going to use? I was going to use a word that they use in the library. Um, collated is the wrong word, but it's something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, all this data, or you could be jumping out on the very real time social media stuff where people are just mm-hmm. putting stuff out, you know, by the minute, and yep. that and that was not a resource that maybe we used to have. Well, we definitely didn't used to have that. Now we do where people are in some cases sharing maybe even more than, than, you know, information is great for us that yep. maybe they should have kind of kept to themselves. Oh yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So the, the next question um, would be resource otherwise. And I always, I always enjoy asking mm-hmm. this to, to fellow um, academics, folks that are in universities that are dealing with, undergraduate students and graduate students and administration 
and a whole bunch of people out in the public, especially mm-hmm. when they're heavy extension. In in your realm, or not so much in your realm as crop science, but in, in what you have done in, in building a program, what are some of the resources that you've really felt valuable just kind of in general to, to go in and get people to that level of professionalism and accountability and things like that, that are, are really beneficial in that academic setting that then takes them out into the real world and makes them successful? So, so the resources for me are are the connections of, of people, right? We have we have we talk about you know we we have a library of books that they go to on the base knowledge, but that doesn't give them hands on. And and as an extension specialist, um, I'm always working with my grads uh, and undergrads about the personal connections and learning, and so making sure that. I have close ties with IPM, that I have close ties with bakers and millers, that I have close ties with engineers uh, around the, the globe. And I reach out to them and I make sure that my students understand the importance of personal connections so that mm-hmm. if something goes sideways, you have somebody to call because in our world anymore, you, you can't know it all and there's too much happening too fast. So you have to have the, the personal resources and capability to reach out to those who are informed in the different areas. And so I, I like to say that my um, contact portfolio is extremely diverse mm-hmm. and I try to pass that down to all the students. And so in classes that I teach, I try to bring in really wide diversity of people so they can get to meet and with the grads, I'm always trying to get them when we're out and about talking to people. And that's that's not just specialists, that's farmers. You know, right. uh, I've got good connections all over the U.S. and South America with just farmers that I can call and say, hey, how what's what's going on in your environment? No, I think I think that's I think that's a great answer. And we've had some others that have given similar answers over various different mm-hmm. episodes of. Yeah, there's plenty of books out there and there's plenty of things on the Internet and there's lots of good information. But today having those having those contacts and knowing those different people um makes a makes a really huge difference and then not and then in the process of of introducing them to people also getting them to learn how to talk to people yes. and say look there's going to be times where you are talking to that farmer and there's going to be times where I'm you know we're going to be somewhere and you're going to be talking to the dean of the college and there's going to be times where we're talking to a mechanic on the floor and then we're going to go over here and it's the owner of the company that's, you know, worth millions of dollars and learning how all these different personalities interact and all that kind of stuff is is something that I, I do think a lot of people have to learn because yeah. they may not come from an environment where they got anything out of their own echo chamber of people they talk to. No, that, that's a great point. Learning personalities and reading people quickly so you know how to meet them at their level. Yeah. Uh, especially with academics, we have a tendency to go to a level that's beyond. Right. And so so getting these folks to the right level so that you can meet that 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 person on the floor or, yeah. or the CEO one yeah. right after the other. And and have that same have that same conversation that you know that the the valuable one. Yep. So then the last question, and it kind of probably is gonna run right into that is as you've gone out, you've met all these different people, everybody from like you said, you know, people that are farmers in other countries, you know, South American countries, um, all the way up to CEOs and everything else. If you if you looked around and you said, Okay, but all these people seem to have a kind of consistent 
quality about them that has made them successful and has made them people that I have put in my portfolio. I call mm-hmm. them because of their expertise and things. Are there, what are maybe some of the things that if you tried to distill it down and, and you could, you know, implant this in a student or a graduate student or somebody and say, if you have this quality, it, it's likely to make you successful. What would maybe one or two of those things be? Uh, somebody willing to take as, as an academic, somebody willing to take risks and step out. And so um, I, I share with my folks, you know, the worst thing I, I can do, the thing I hate the most is going to one of my research counterparts asking for uh, a recommendation. They say, well, I don't I can't give you the exact number. And, and we know that. So the ability, if you're talking to people to work off the cuff and give an answer even though there's not an exact answer and you give the rationale of the answer and also somebody that can communicate that they don't know the answer, but this is the information behind it. Mm. Uh, and, and those people also are, are, uh, you know, have diverse portfolios of friends that they, they understand. So I'm looking for those things, you know, don't, don't be cut and dry, be honest. I guess that would be honest and open yeah. uh, nature of people. Uh, I may not know an answer, but I'm going to walk through my thought process irregardless, just so I can share with the people asking me. I'm not just going to say, well, I don't know and move on. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I was having a conversation with a colleague yesterday and it it dovetails exactly, I think, in with what you're saying, where it was, we were talking about someone in in various different projects they're running and it was, okay, it's great in the in the instance of of planning and looking forward and having a structure. You don't want to necessarily have people that fly by the seat of their pants and and just ah come what may. But the people that are successful when they are planning out don't do that. But then when the moment comes up where they do need to just kind of okay, well, in this one moment I got to make a decision, I got to make a change, I got to give you an answer. Yeah. They don't go, well, I mean, look you're going to have to give me four days to think about it because I like to be that structured. It's like, no, I want you to be structured when you have time mm-hmm. to be structured. Yep. Exactly. And I want you to be able to think off the top of your head when you don't have the time. Yep. And that's, that's a skill set that is. is, you know, somewhat, somewhat rare or, or takes some developing to be comfortable in your own skin. I think you, you got to be careful to be risk because you're putting out information that, that yeah. isn't scientifically backed. And we're saying we got to be science backed, but you're, you're putting out your opinion as a mm-hmm. scientist, which is still valuable. You just have to let people know it's your opinion and you don't have the, the data right at that moment. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brian, I have very much appreciated the conversation. Again, my guest today was Dr. Brian Arnell, uh, professor at Oklahoma State University and the host of the Crop Science Podcast show on Wise Genetics. Thanks, Brian, for your time. Thank you, Adam. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for joining us today in this conversation. Man, it's been a lot of fun for me. It really brings out the complexity of our sciences. Even though we're we're feed millers and we're agronomists and, and soil scientists, we both are challenged by the same you know, advances in technology as we look at the integration of data into decisions. You know, if you like this podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button, share it with your friends, make sure you're updated every time we have a new release. We look forward to having you next, uh, see you on the next episode. Do want to take a moment to thank the sponsors of this, this podcast. They have been great to work with. Really appreciate it. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Medics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. 
Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.